Hello, everyone, and welcome to Everyday Linux, episode 107, Why Linux, recorded August 11th, 2013, and brought to you by Element OP Productions, elementopie.com. It's a, it's a topic we've covered before, but it's been a while. We have new listeners, so I thought we'd go back, uh, circle back, and hit one of the very basic topics about the show. Why do we run Linux, and why might you choose to run Linux? So that's what we're talking about this week. Why Linux? And of course, to help me do that are my regular companions, my cohorts in crime, the command line godfather, Mr. Chris Knees. Hey, Chris. Howdy, everybody. How's things in internet lands today? Uh, it's grumpy, and there are a lot of cats, apparently. And uh, oh. alongside the command line godfather, the gooey goodness that is, the Seth Gooey Kid Anderson. Hey, Seth. Hello, Mark, and welcome to the faithful Element Opiates from around the world. Yes, That's and it right. literally is a global podcast. That's true. Um, we and we love every single one of you. Well, some even of you, the haters. Some of you we don't love. We're okay with you. We don't mind you so much. <laughs> uh, most of you we love. <laughs> uh, and right off the bat, we lose Seth. That's awesome. Like the as soon as his introduction, his Skype connection drops. Um, Go figure. So we'll get him back momentarily. Oh, looks like he's back now. Hey, Seth, welcome back. Hello, glad to be back. It uh, it just seems like I was here so recently. <laughs> That's right. Uh, okay, so uh, moving right along, I just wanted to uh, a little programming note. Uh, there are only a handful of you who will hear this right now, but this show may be a little late coming out this week. Typically, I uh, we record on Sundays and I release on Wednesday. This week, uh, unfortunately, uh, I had a death in the family, um, and so I will be hightailing it back to texas um on tuesday and that's typically when i release the show tuesday night so it may be a little later in the week so uh if if the if the show is late that's why um <clears throat> that'll be it's about a 15 hour drive i'll be heading out tuesday driving all day going to the funeral services when to stay and then coming back thursday so it's going to be a whirlwind trip for me this week man wow sorry to hear that uh, you know, it's it is what it is. People die. Um, this was a cousin that with whom I was really close, and um, I, I, you know, there wasn't even a question of will I be there. It's like, yes, I'm going to go. It was just a right. question of how I'm going to make that happen. And it's it's kind of at first. My first thought was uh, let's see if I can book a flight. That way, I can only miss two days of work instead of three. You know, I could fly out. Uh, I can potentially right. even miss one day of work. Um, but short notice weekday business travelers leaving on one day coming back on another like the lowest airfare i found was was seven hundred dollars each way um wow they really rape the business people uh, over the coals when it comes to travel so yeah uh, it's gonna cost you know probably 500 in gas to make the trip but still that's a significant savings over airfare and it's only a two-hour flight so two hours in the air Seven hundred dollars, three hundred fifty bucks an hour. That's a pretty good pay. I want that kind of pay. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. Maybe if you ever become a consultant, you'll be able to do that. Oh, nice! That, what a great. <laughs> that was a big market segue. So naturally, we have to break it up by pointing out that it was a great segue. <laughs> uh, yeah, I Thank did you. do some consult. My first professional consulting gig. I got a uh, 
an email. Um, I think it was sent at about 4 a.m. last Sunday night. Um, and I, as is my custom, because I'm a geek and that's what I do, I rolled out of bed and read my email first thing in the morning. Uh, so literally right. a couple of hours after he sent it, uh, a fellow by the name of Eric Stromquist, who has a podcast called Control Trends, controltrends.org. Um, he is a, 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 manuf- uh, a distributor of heating and air conditioning devices. Uh, so it's very esoteric stuff. I listened to a, uh, a couple of his episodes. I, only, I understood the prepositions on, of, the, and. That's about it. <laughs> Everything in between, I was lost. Um, but he, uh, he had had some, so he bought some really nice gear, good high quality stuff, but just didn't quite know how to hook it all up. So, uh, he said, Hey, I, I listened, he listened to my art of podcasting show, uh, that we did 35 episodes of, and, uh, he knew I was in Atlanta. So he thought, we'll see what happens. So I went down there yesterday, <clears throat> Saturday, uh, and it was really awesome. I got to spend the day doing, you know, what I love spending somebody else's money. Like, hey, we need this piece of wood. Come with me. So we go, and I pick out something expensive and say, you got to pay for that. And he said, yes, sir. Uh, <laughs> and it was just, it was a nice thing. I really got to do it, and, and it helps that Eric's an awesome guy. So I really actually enjoyed the time there. You know, it's nice if you're not working with a jerk. I don't know that he'd say the same thing. Uh, but anyway, it was uh, it was a good time, and it was my first uh, consulting gig. So, you know, throw it out there. If you know somebody looking for some podcast consulting, uh, I'm, I'll do it. We can maybe do it online or over the phone, but if you want me to come to you and you're within, you know, a, a day's drive, we'll make it happen. So anyway, just, uh, awesome. Thought I would mention that. Uh, one other thing I wanted to mention, um, iTunes comments, keep them coming. We've had, a uh, some new ones this week. I check not often. Um, but, uh, door to door geek, Steve McLaughlin, uh, he and I were, we're talking on Voxer on it's a Android um, app for sort of a walkie-talkie app, and we talk occasionally uh, over that. And he, he said, you need to remind me to rate you in iTunes because thanks to you, I now have an iTunes account without a credit card because of the information we posted. So I sent cool. him an email that said, rate me or die, jerk. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, I just want to say, if you haven't done that yet, please do. Uh, the ratings are a good thing. We're moving on up there. We're in the within about a top fifteen in the Linux thing, within about the top one million in the tech thing, uh, depending on what you search for. Uh, but but uh, that's based almost entirely on reviews. So the more reviews we get, the more we move up the ladder there. Uh, and there were a couple that made me laugh. Almost all of them were five star reviews. Um, cool. there, there was a couple of them that were like I think our lowest one was three stars, and so. Uh, some people would say, if you're not going to leave a five-star review, why even do it? But I don't, I don't think that way, you know, um, say what's on your mind. I'm fine with that. But this one particular guy, I'm not going to call his name, uh, left us a, uh, uh, a tepid review, said the show's too long. Uh, it was one of his comments. And then, uh, just out of curiosity, I started jumping around to, to a lot of the other like top 20 Linux podcasts and he had commented on all of them. And his comment was almost the same on all of them. Too long, too disorganized, doesn't get to the point enough. So this guy wants an eight-minute kernel update. And that would be, that's the show that he wants to listen to. Um, Dang. But, you know, more power to you. Uh, If you like the show, you like the show. If you don't, there's a lot of them out there. 
um so yeah he doesn't realize that the entire show is our point so uh <laughs> we do it really well there was there was another podcast i won't i won't mention what it was well he really ripped it It was like you learn more about the 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 host personal lives and family issues than you do about linux and i thought it's amazing he didn't say that about us but anyway yeah we're gonna have to step it up we gotta be number we could be number one in that we might not could be number one linux but dead coming we could be number one useless information linux podcast uh yeah and i even updated the uh descri- description on both our website and the itunes feed to to say the show the linux show that's not about linux uh and i use the phrase life in the context of linux so we're we're owning that we're we've decided Sweet. that's the way we're gonna go that's we're the linux show that's not about linux we need yeah, to right. uh, we should like buy that url life in the context of linux.com oh nice um i will do i will try to do that while the show is going on I, i'm such a, i have i'm a godaddy addict godaddy should be sponsoring this show because <laughs> well uh, i have ping a, them. I have a domain say. i have a domain problem uh anytime like seth just said you know hey that's a good idea um i go and uh boop because it's eight bucks a year you know and but right. they send me like year to yearly updates account updates and the last one i think it was i own like 37 domains just for Holy smokes, know, man <laughs> I, I have a problem I, i'm an addict i need to go to a 12-step program for domain <laughs> registrations da domains anonymous not to be confused Dot with com. anonymous but <laughs> yes <laughs> Oh, and then one other thing I wanted to point out: the bad movie thread continues to live. Um, oh gosh, I forgot. Sweet. I forgot the name. Somebody just dropped a, a a list out there. Go check it out. And thank you, listener, whose name just flew out of my head. Some of the things that you uh, suggested sounded freaking awesome, and I'm going to have to check out what Bird Mike. I think was one of them. It's like Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds, only without plot or suspense or reason of any kind. That sounds perfect. Uh, so it's like all the birds in the world go crazy due to global warming. That's the only explanation, global warming. So instead of doing something smart, like going to a basement where the birds can't get in, everybody goes outside armed with, with tennis rackets and shotguns because that's what you do when the birds attack. Um, but even Arnold is, the, is, Arnold. The, is our poster. Arnold. Is that an asylum movie that was on a sci-fi channel? Uh, I don't know. Uh, but he said there was even a sequel to it, Bird Mike 2. So, um, the Resurrection? Oh my God. <laughs> uh, and then what was what was the other one? You, uh, you've obviously got it up there, Chris. Uh, that, uh, uh, the sheep, Black Sheep. Black Sheep, yeah. where even sheeps can go crazy and start attacking people. Oh, it sounds awesome. Yeah, there's there's a list. Yeah. There's oh, yeah. definitely a, he's got a good set of lists there. Oh, yeah, and, and Sharktopus, he says that uh, the entire plot of that movie could have been avoided had they listened to our episode 106. Uh, so. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I got to admit, Sharktopus was, it wasn't as funny, it wasn't as good, bad as Sharknado. It was just plain bad. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> See, that's what makes so, Sharknado so awesome is that it's, it's good, bad. You know, it's bad, but in a way that is enjoyable. It, it, even in Sunday school this morning, I, I whipped out Sharknado and everybody laughed at it. It's it's become a cultural thing. So, there was a, a picture on Facebook of a dust devil and somebody said, what do you call this? I don't remember the exact name. So I put Sharknado 2. <laughs> <laughs> 
this time it's personal. Oh, yeah, there are, there's so, some great bad movies out there. So one other fun thing to do in the summer, other than uh, watching movies, is going to the county fair, especially That's when right. you live in the boondocks. Like the command. Well, there's line not much by. else around here. That's right. There's not much else around here. But uh, yeah, the county fair is this weekend, and I think I spent way too much time and way too much money at the county fair. But we had a lot of good fun. Um, I don't know if anyone knows who Blackstone Cherry is, but they're a, a heavy metal type group, uh, hard rock, and they were brought in for uh, the first night of fun and fun in the sun. Um, so we we had our ears bleeding by the time all the guitar solos were done. And then last night was the rodeo. So, of course, if we're in boondock, you know, country time, everyone has to go to the rodeo. Um, but it was a great fun, and we had a lot of fun in, in general for the fair. Uh, we also had a celebrity come to town, Michael Angelo Patino. I think it's Patino. Um, he's the, uh, he's a guitar, famous guitar riff, and, uh, he came to town for a clinic for like six hours. He was at what our, uh, our local comic shop. Of all things, um, it, it's a guitar and comic shop place, and he came and did a six-hour clinic for us. And so, after Blackstone Cherry ripped our faces off with uh, guitar riffs, Michael came in and re- and added salt to the wound and ripped them off again. Nice. I was at so, a concert. Yeah. Uh, you know how uh, lots of up-and-coming musicians do the college circuit. I was at a concert in college, and I can't remember the guy's name, but he's a he's a really good guitarist. And he was playing, and somebody in the audience yelled out, play some Satriani! And he got up to the mic, and he said, when Satriani starts playing my stuff, I'll start playing his. And I, <laughs> I, I liked that response. And that's pretty I cool. I was impressed. I was impressed with the lead singer for um, Blackstone Cherry. You know, when you're at a, a large um, concert like that, you know, people start getting rough in the crowd, and they start throwing things. He literally stopped his show twice and said, all right, here's your first warning. You do it again, we're going to leave. And he goes, this is it. You do anything stupid again, we're lo- we're shutting it down. You're getting out of here. And then nice. no, it was awesome. I never actually saw a lead singer stop a show for the safety of the audience. It was impressive. That's cool. My hat's off to you, sir. My hat is off to you. You're not wearing a hat. That's because it's off. That's, yeah, that's, that's because right. it's off. It, that's how awesome it was. Do you want me to go put it back on? <laughs> uh, Steve Gibson, we've we've used his name in vain a number of times on this show, and Seth says he both loves and hates him. Yeah, um, I, I, I haven't in a while, but I used to regularly listen to his Security Now podcast, which if you want in-depth technical stuff, go listen to him. Uh, but he also, he got me into reading the Lost Fleet series, and that was a oh, great that. couple of days. <laughs> yeah, but no, I've also started reading the Honor Harrington series, and the bad thing about this is there's so many books, and like the one I'm currently reading now is like over a thousand pages, so there's no reading that in half a day. So thank you, Steve Gibson, for destroying my life. And uh, anyway, if you like good science fiction or space opera, go check out the Honor Harrington series and start with On Basilic Station and read them in the order they were published. They are freaking awesome. Yeah, so Seth actually you, got a, a shout out from Steve Gibson on on security now when he wrote in and told him that because of him, he wrote read six books in one weekend or something like that. <laughs> yeah. 
And, uh, you know, of course, and I, I paid for it too with my lack of, I got like eight hours <laughs> sleep over three days because I, and those books were only like 400 pages each. So you could read six of them in a weekend, but you can't do that with, uh, with the honor Harrington books because the, the, the later you can tell when you pick up a book, was this one of the first ones or was this one of the last ones? Right. Because the longer the series has gone, the thicker the books have gotten. Um, but like I say, it's well worth the reads. Yeah, cool. and he uh, he's uh, Steve Gibson just recently the Void trilogy, which is something like six. Uh, I'm not no, listening. I'm it's not like eighteen hundred, two thousand pages for the three books, and he read those over less than a week. So you're not the only obsessive reader in the world, Seth. <laughs> well, he also does it I'm, everywhere I'm he can possibly I'm do not it. Listening too, to so. any other Steve Gibson recommendations <laughs> till I catch up on Honor. <laughs> yeah, I love I love Steve's show. I, I really wish. Uh, I had more time in the day to listen to all his podcasts, but uh, he's he's definitely a a visionary yeah. in that in book reading and his security stuff. So Security Now yeah. is the only show that I listen to. I, if I'm in the middle of a show on Thursdays when his show comes out, I will stop and listen to to Security Now. But I can't listen to it while I do anything else. So I listen yep. to it while I'm driving. But I can't listen to it at work or while I'm multitasking. It just requires too much brain. Uh, so yeah. sometimes it takes me a while to get through his. But uh, he is, I, I'm not going to say my favorite, but he's certainly in the top five of my podcast. It's its very geeky, very um, esoteric stuff. And, and sometimes he, um, I, I disagree with his assertions, but you can't disagree with his arguments. I mean, even if you don't. If you don't agree with the point he's making, he defends his point in a way that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. He, and I appreciate He's a great that. arguer. Right. Uh, and, and he knows his stuff. You know, like, I'm a pretty decent arguer, but I don't really know all the stuff I make up. So he knows his stuff. And so when he argues, he hits you with true facts and not facts you just made up off the top of your head. Like when the so. whole prism thing, the Edward Snowden uh, uh, article came out. He came back the next week and said, I've been thinking about this. And if the NSA came to me and said, how would you des design something for us so that we could snoop on people? He said, this is what I would do. And then over the weeks, as more and more stuff has been released, it's like he called it every step of the way um, that, you know, the, some of the verbiage is a little different. Some of the timeline is a little different. But what he said he would do is what we're finding out they're doing. Um, and that's yeah. impressive, no matter who you are. It just shows that he's a legendary. I hope somebody can come up and fill his shoes when he uh, passes on, because he is one of those great minds of our of our lifetime. That when he goes, there's going to be a big void where he left, and we have lost Seth yet again. <laughs> there he is. Oh. So uh, <laughs> just in time. Okay, so here we go on to the listener feedback. Mike writes in. Uh, with a little more information about H.D. Moore, uh, he's the uh, security researcher we quoted in the uh, pinging of the internet story. Um, he says, H.D. Moore uh, invented Metasploit, which is basically a hacker's toolbox. Also, a website I recommend checking out is uh, ShodanHQ, S-H-O-D-A-N-H-Q.com. Lots of neat info there. Great show, and keep it up. And yeah, after after we did the show, you know, probably would have been more uh, better journalistic integrity if, had, if I'd done my research before the show. <laughs> but after the show, I went and did some research on Edward Snowden. And he uh, apparently is based out of Austin, Texas. Uh, works for, uh, what did I say? 
Eric Snowden. Oh, excuse me, H.D. Moore. Yeah, the names collided in my head. H.D. Moore, and um, he works uh, for a, a security research company in Austin and uh, uh, is the guy uh, largely responsible for Metasploit. And um, even if you're a casual hacker, you know what Metasploit is. Um, yeah. It's like a, it, well, it's, it's, it's a toolkit for hacking. Yep. Anytime a vulnerability comes out, anytime new information is re- revealed about a weakness, it's in Metasploit that day. Um, and yeah. so it's, it's it, sort it's of a, the, the ultimate hacker Swiss army knife. Yeah. I, well, yeah, and I would also, one of those things I would that, also add, or go ahead, Chris. Um, I was going to say, it's not only just a hacker's toolkit, it's a penetration tester's toolkit too. Cause I, there's people that use this thing for real life reasonings and it's not just for the bad guys. It's for the white hats too. Well, at that point, you're a bad guy for a good reason. You're still a hacker when right. you're doing pen testing. You were saying, right. uh, Seth? Well, no, I was just going to say that hacking is a verb that doesn't necessarily have evil or good connotations right. because you can try to hack your own stuff to make it more secure to stand up to other people's hacking. So hacking is kind of like drive, driving. There's good ways to drive vehicles and there's bad ways to drive vehicles. So. And that's unfortunately something that society has. Um, hacking is this evil thing that, um, and it's not really, I mean, it can be, but it's hacking isn't, it's how it's done. And everyone who drives vehicles in a bad way gets in front of me uh, on I-75 in the mornings. All of them. <laughs> yeah. You, you haven't seen that website where people sign up for time slots? <laughs> uh, news report, Mark is running late. Uh, everybody hold off uh, okay now he's he's on the on the road bad drivers uh, it's like the truman show got uh yep. guys queuing people up uh, okay moving right on uh, rick i read a little bit of his email last week weighs in on show length um he says hey guys several times over the last few episodes i've heard you mention that the podcast has gotten too long one person even wrote in to say that he didn't like it because sometimes he got to work and wasn't finished so he should uh, thought it should be shorter do these same people complain if they order a small pizza and the pizza place delivers a large? Do they demand a refund? I look at a longer podcast as a free large pizza. If it's not over when I get to where I'm going, guess what? I'll listen to it later. And if I still don't finish it, that's okay too. As for getting off topic, off the Linux topic, to me this podcast is like sitting around and chatting with friends. The topics wander, we talk about lots of stuff, don't waste the effort trying to talk about nothing but Linux. Only geeks would do that. <laughs> so thanks for and, the affirmation rick and rick if i would correct one thing in your email i would say it's like getting extra bacon you know <laughs> large and large pizza there is great but extra bacon would have been even better so yeah, uh, we do appreciate it rick yeah because everyone charges for more for bacon i went to right. lunch with uh with some friends today and a guy ordered a, a chicken sandwich uh with a side of bacon uh, or with bacon on it and the chicken sandwich came without the bacon and he, he was like what's this i can't eat this crap i mean there's no <laughs> bacon <laughs> well i mean everything else was still there there was the chicken there was the bread there was no there's no there's no bacon what i can't eat this um so it just made me laugh bacon is that important if you don't have it, it really it ruins the meal <laughs> and unfortunately <laughs> this is a side note that has nothing to do with technology but the price of bacon and all pork products is going to be going up because there's like some type of epidemic going through the pig world that is killing swine early. So 
you know, we've got to put more research in how to make pigs live longer <laughs> and be more disease resistant because I don't want bacon to go up so much that I can't afford to eat it on a very regular basis. Well, the answer There's to that with America. is it just convert more people to Islam and Judaism, and then, then there'll be enough bacon to go around. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. That was bad. And that's it for bad. our listener feedback. You guys have not been as prolific in the recent past. Uh, you're probably still listening to the last six-hour episode we put out, so I understand. Um, but uh, that's it for listener feedback. So on to the tech news. And, and technology is everywhere even in the toilet yeah i came across this story and i i couldn't believe it i had to put it in there apparently there is a smart toilet out there that you can use bluetooth it's controlled via bluetooth and you can do things such as raise and lower the seats flush the commode activate the bidet or the dryer function <laughs> and <laughs> So apparently it's hard coded in the app that anybody with this Android app can control any smart toilet. It's, there it's, isn't it's like a toilet. A, it's a vulnerability in the toilet infrastructure. Yes. So, <laughs> I mean, imagine, you know, there's just all kinds of ways. <laughs> That's so much fun anyway. and so much badness at the same time. I mean, it, how much danger is that? I mean, could you force a courtesy flush on somebody? Uh, what, what, <laughs> how much harm could there really be in hacking a toilet? Well, I don't well, know. You, you know, force a bidet to you're fire doing up. number one, and all of a sudden the lid flies down, <laughs> that could conceivably cause some pain. <laughs> or the air dryer could start and just it'd be kind of like peeing in the wind. Uh, <laughs> Oh man, you! I who knows where you come up with it? Yeah, apparently the problem is uh, the the default password is zero 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 zero. It's hard coded, and so anybody can can uh, pair their phone with it. But you got to be within twenty feet, so they got to be near your crapper in the first place. Um. Well, I mean, there's Bluetooth extenders and public crappers and all that kind of stuff. And rich people who have these congregate together at parties. Um, there's just all kinds of there's just all kinds of ways that uh, this could end badly for if no one else whoever has to clean the bathroom. So, oh, my toilet's been hacked. Nine one one, come quick! Oh, help! <laughs> That's awesome. Oh, that was so much fun. Bluetooth poo, Alchemy Dragon in the chat room says. Why? Uh, why not? If you could stick a Raspberry Pi on it, why not? Uh, no kidding. And, you know, if you think about it, it could be a way to cut down on disease. You don't have to touch the toilet, the toilet to flush it. You just touch your smartphone. So, and that flushes the toilet for you. So, uh, you know, I mean... I, you I'm know, as a parent, as a parent of young children, if I could remotely flush all the toilets in the house with one push of the button, I would do that because On that's generally heartbeat. the first thing I have to do when I walk into the room is flush the toilet. Uh, so I would set up like a cron job that that just does it, flushes them every hour <laughs> on the hour. <laughs> Or just put like a little laser across the door. So anytime someone walks in or out, it activates the toilet flush. Uh, you, would, 
you know, a sensor that, that you know, if, if methane or ammonia are, are detected in the bowl, you flush automatically after five minutes. Oh, my gosh. Now, I'm, awesome. I'm, now, I'm now officially on board with this. I want to get one of these. I have just talked myself into this smart toilet. <laughs> oh, oh I'm going to die. <laughs> Okay, so how do you this follow? Is, this should have been my link of the week. I <laughs> yeah, think. It yeah, it should have been. Story. How do you follow a smart toilet? Well, with Intel's first open source PC, of course. Um, open source yeah. being a bit of a misnomer in this case, I think. Yeah, it's kind of designed at software developers and people who do x86 applications. It's kind of like. They're trying to get on the Raspberry Pi thing, but it's bigger and it's they're kind of just selling a motherboard. Basically, um, I don't really know. I can't think of much use for it, but um, and honestly, I don't even remember why I picked this new story. So um, but anyway, Intel, they're kind of reaching out to the open source community and they're kind of giving you just a blank PC board that you can use to come up with whatever you want. Like I say, much the same way you would with the Raspberry Pi or a Beagle board or something like that. But and why they have... call it open source is that they the schematics are online, so you can you can know the pinouts, you can read where it goes, you could even modify it, I guess. Uh, but it's still you slap an x86 processor in it. So um, I'm I'm failing to see how it's a big deal, uh, how how open it is when you still have to slap a, a, a proprietary chip in it to make it do its thing yeah um like i say i don't i don't remember why i picked this because this this was one of our holdovers from last week but it it really struck me then um and you know i've slept since then and dream dreamed about uh smart toilets so i don't remember what this was for but yeah anyway it's one of those things they're releasing it out there and they're kind of opening themselves up and getting out from under microsoft's uh thumb because that doesn't seem to be going anywhere good and they're just opening themselves up for a new revenue stream and hopefully it can kind of take off and maybe get some open source love in much the same way that like the raspberry pi does and the chat question was asked in the chat room how big is it it's four inches square uh, and it's funny, I looked at it and I thought, well, I know the size of those components. You know, I know how big a, a SATA slot is. I know how big um, a, an Ethernet slot is. So that looks about four inches. And then halfway through the article, it says it's four inches. So nailed it. Awesome. <laughs> it pays to be a guy who doesn't read articles. I don't know. Um, <laughs> so AOS 10 apps. Or there's basically a wine version uh, for OS 10, if I'm reading this correctly. Yeah, basically they're on their way to Linux and it's called the Darling Project. So what wine is to Windows, the Darling Project is trying to be to Apple. So if there's some Apple thing that you love, such as iTunes, but no one loves iTunes, maybe like a GarageBand or something like that, and you wanted to run it on Linux then this would be for you it's when you know it, it's not as developed it hasn't been around as long as wine so it's not going to function as great but i think it's pretty cool you know it's and you know it's a linux story one of the things there's a lot of linux and open source news this week i apologize for being so <laughs> How dare uh, you related bring linux into our linux podcast that's the nerve i know 
you know, and no bacon. That's why I had to, <laughs> you know, jump in on Rick's uh, feedback there. What I think is but interesting yeah, here is is that you need something to do because, I mean, uh, uh, OS ten is based on, um, help me out, uh, it's a, a version of Unix, and I can't remember what it is. So anyway, it's essentially it is a, a Linux cousin, and I, I, I I'm surprised that it's not easier to port things than it is that you can't just port the app rather than having to have a uh, uh, an emulator layer in between it. Um, but obviously, if if that could have been done, it would have been done a long time ago. Maybe it has more to do with the fact that we don't have the source code, and that's why we can't port it. But uh, um, it just it strikes me as interesting that you would even need this. Uh, and I'm yeah. sure I'm sure the the performance is is not going to be as good as bare metal, but uh, you know if you need a, a, a Mac app, I I don't even know what those would be, but uh, if you need one and you're a Linux guy, Darling is your darling. Well, I mean, you know, th- th- this could be a way for us to do a, a podcast on Linux equipment, um, you know, because <laughs> Mac has several good podcasting apps, so I've heard. Uh, uh, what what I find interesting is there isn't at least uh, somebody correct me if I'm wrong there isn't an alternative to GarageBand for Windows or Linux. GarageBand is is a unique animal unto itself, and nothing really that I know of comes close to giving the 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 ease of use and the loops and the um, the library that it has. Uh, and and that another that's another thing. Is it because there's not a market for it, or because something they did is just special spot sauce that nobody else knows how to do. I've of, I've often it's been puzzled about that. Like their um their uh Keynote app has been cloned. There are lots of things that are very similar to Keynote and uh and iTunes of course has been uh, ported and cloned. Um but nobody's cloned GarageBand and and I I wonder if that's just because nobody wants to or because it's really hard to. Hmm. I don't know. I'm looking and there are some things like it, but not necessarily as good as it. Right. There are a lot of things that claim to be like it, but there are a lot of things that claim to be just like word too. And they're not, I mean, they have a white screen (laughs) and you can type in it, uh, but they're, they are not. Um, Well, Mixcraft. (laughs) Oh, Seth, poor Seth. He's having a hard time today. Um, he is. So I will move on to the next story, and he will catch up when he gets back in. Um, the Linux kernel 3.1 has been picked as the long-term support kernel. Um, that's kind of cool. Well, that's good. Yeah. Well, it's it's not normal for Linux kernels to be marked as long-term. Usually, it's the distribution that marks things as long-term. Right. So to say that the kernel has been marked long-term is interesting. No, I was going to say this is one of the things that they were the Linux research or developers were realizing, and they kind of did this for the major developer, you know, like Can- or Red Hat and stuff like that to give them a long term distro. But what they found out is that everybody who did like um, embedded Linux and stuff, they really like this too because you don't want to spend all your time investing in this kernel and then all of a sudden, boom, you know, they change the kernel. So now they've set and they're Every so often, they're going to make, um, and they're going to make known that hey, this kernel that came out, it's going to be a long-term support kernel. 
which just means that they will they will patch it longer rather than moving on to something else. Um, right. But that's still, I don't Two see years. how that helps embedded devices. I mean, it's not easy well, to incorporate a patch into an embedded device. Um, I don't know. Uh, but, you know, in some of the smaller distros as well, something along the lines of like a puppy that doesn't have, you know, all the developers that like a Red Hat does. It's just a way for them to know that I can base something on this on this uh, kernel and they might move on to another kernel but they'll keep patching this one so in the event of a security exploit or something that comes out there will be a fix for it whenever otherwise it's like oh we gave up that kernel six months ago you should move on to something else so i'm i mean i think it's kind of cool that they're doing it and they're this way they're every it kind of it's one way to you know, not necessarily make Linux the same, but make the the distros more compatible for the long-term releases. They're going to be based on the same kernel instead of having this long-term release based on that kernel and that long-term release based on this kernel. It's kind of helps give a more unified mob mentality to the Linux world, maybe. <laughs> unified mob mentality. That you need to go um, hand uh, register that domain too. That's that's a great one. Unified mob mentality. Sounds like a good name for a punk pan. Yeah, um, it does. So while we're talking about Linux and why you might want to patch stuff, there's now an official Trojan for Linux. It took years, but here it is. Yes. Um, what is, Hand of the Thief of the is thief. what it is called, and it is a Trojan backdoor designed for linux to go after banking uh software and it could be done other things but you can actually buy it on the black market and it's got sales reps and everything and one of the cool things about well not necessarily cool but one of the unique characteristics of it is it's targeted for linux so theoretically if you got this on your windows machine it wouldn't do anything because it's not designed to recognize windows it's you know and it's one of those things you know max are not invincible ios devices are not invincible Android, no os is invincible uh you know you can't think oh, i'm running this and it's you know it's lollipops and sugar fairies for everyone you just have to uh you know there's still the need for security and um but yeah that's just what it is there is a hack that targets um linux now right yeah and it, this it, really is interesting is how they're one, doing it kind of um it's manipulating the the uh, DNS addressing within the memory. So instead of actually writing something to the hard drive or editing the host file or anything like that that you can't do because of it, you're not root user, it's doing it live. So it's it's actually injecting its information while you're browsing on the internet. So it, it's a very sophisticated hack. And not only just it, so far, it says. Uh, the developer claims it's been tested on 15 different distributions of Linux and affects all environments, including GNOME and KDE, and the most common browsers such as Firefox and Chrome. So, um, yeah, it's pretty much... I'd like to see some of the code, but I don't think we're going to be able to find the code yet for that. But that's Well, you can buy it, apparently, for $2,000 US. Um, yeah. And get free updates. Yeah. So, um, you know, if you want to get it, if yeah. you want to be a beta tester, once it goes live, they're going to jack the price up to about $3,000. So, uh, 
it, you know, it bears mentioning. Be, uh, go ahead. Uh, but yeah, it bears mentioning that the the way you get this virus is you download it, you install it, and you enter your password and give it permission to install. Um, the, that's that's the only way to get software in Linux at this point. Uh, and and the article does say you know you got to do that. You got to trick somebody into installing it, thinking they want it. Um, yeah. Which you know, as we talked about last week, is really not that hard to do. Um, you know, you send a convincing email, uh, and you you know you say you got to download this viewer to see the content on this page, something like that, something that pe- uh, people who aren't paying attention will do. Uh, so it's not it's not a worm. That's the important uh, distinction there. It's not going to tunnel from one computer to another. It's not going to spread autonomously. It is a Trojan. It is an application that does something but purports to do something else. Right. It's, it's important to right. know the difference. And, you know, how hard would it be to set up a website that you need to install this browser update or, you know, this plugin update, you know, put in your password. And instead of doing that, you've installed it on your computer. So it's, you know, it's one of those things. It's not like, oh my gosh, I can't use Linux because it's not bulletproof, but it's, a, you know, just, you got to be smart and you got to be, you got to think. So. And, uh, okay. Anything else to say about that? I don't want to beat the point up, but it's, it's not something to just totally gloss over either. Yeah. No, I, it's, it's one of those things that is an interesting idea. I like the, what's interesting though also is, like I said earlier, it doesn't actually change any of your files. So it's doing it live. (laughs) So it it would make finding it a little trickier if you don't know the name of the, of the package that you need to get rid of. All right. And moving on. So this next story is not directly Linux related, but it is, uh, hardware that runs Linux. Um, a company is uh, developing a laptop that runs Ubuntu, but it is a solar-powered, submersible laptop. Very cool. Yeah. Ap- apparently, the submersible one is an extra $50. But if you, you know, it's it's a little bit more than a netbook, but it definitely would not be in an ultrabook kind of category. And it, you can have 3 or 4G connectivity, you know, Wi-Fi, uh, Bluetooth, that kind of stuff. And one of the neat things about it is you can detach the solar charger and like attach it with like an extension cord. So you could be inside and then, but you could put your solar charger outside and still be able to charge your computer and use it. The name, it is solar, sola or soul laptop, S O L A P T O P dot com. Decent price. You know, you're not like, it's not something like the mint box uh, where you're paying a premium for Linux. It's actually, you know, decent price. You're not getting, um, you know, you're not getting shafted big time on this. And I think for the solar power thing, it's a, it's kind of cool. Here's why this will never take off. At least not in the Western world. The absolute worst place to use a laptop is in bright sunlight. Yeah. You right. have to have bright sunlight to charge your laptop. So, uh, well, it has that little extension cord thing, right. so you can set the charger someplace, and I don't know how long the extension cord is going to be, and you could be somewhere else. So, or you know, you can have it charging while you're doing something else, and then with the battery, have several hours of usage. It's a gimmick. I don't know what else. It, you know, they could probably say it's for the developing world or whatever, but it's too right. expensive for that. So I think yeah. it's just a gimmick and nothing else. 
it's kind of a cool idea though. It'd be interesting to see if they, if solar pads when they improve to the point where it doesn't have to be bright sunlight to to charge things, you know, and you could be in the shade, it might be a different story. Um but right now I think the solar solar panels are the the weak link there. Well, and this is first generation. So, you know, couple of revisions from now if, if this shows merit at least a niche kind of acceptance in the market come out with a way to increase the effectiveness of the solar panels or a long cord you know or maybe some type of wireless power thing um who knows there's all kinds of possibilities so i just think it's kind of neat I, I don't think i would buy one but i think it's kind of neat and uh, on the subject of things getting better over time, people complain that uh, cell phones only come with 32 or 16 gigs of storage. How would you like to have 384 gigs of storage? Well, that may be in your Ooh. near future. Yeah, this is not a product that is ready for market yet, but Samsung has a way to what they basically do is take 24 of their 16 gig storage chips and stack them on top of each other but in such a way that it's not much thicker than their existing one layer so you know like six times 24 something like 384 if i trust the math in the article so you know you could you could have if you were going on a trip or something you could load up you know 10 or 12 movies on that that you legally own you know don't go don't go downloading stuff that's not yours, but and that way you can get longer battery life because you're not using you know Wi-Fi or cellular signal, and then your kids will be happy all the whole trip. So 384 gigs in a smartphone—that's just freaking amazing. I think yeah. I, I might be wrong on that, but I think it's pretty cool. And with NAND flash access, you know, random access, uh, quick uh, uh, um, access, uh, it's. That's power. That's uh, and I remember. Oh, it was a while back, maybe twelve, fifteen years ago. Uh, Toshiba or Hitachi, I forget which one, came out with the first uh, perpendicular way of storing bits on a hard drive, and that's what made multi terabyte drives uh, available in the three and a half inch space. And you know, it was a big deal then. Now it's par for the course. So this thing, you know, is going to be a big deal uh, for a while. Uh, and then it's going to be par for the course, and I think that's the that's the exciting thing. When when this is developed and commercially viable, it'll change you know the way we do things in general. Yeah, you know, and so if it's if you can put that much in a smartphone, what could you put in a tablet the size of a full size iPad or a, a Galaxy Ten or something like that? You know, you could have a few of those things and. You could just have a whole lot of storage. At that point, tablets truly become desktop replacements when you can get that kind of storage on them. Yeah. And it's, you know, that's, it's not anytime soon, but it's coming. And that's the cool yeah. thing. Right. It's very cool. All right. And that was, I had a weird hangout crash. Just everything kind of went nuts there, but everything seems to be back now. So we're going to keep on. Uh, going um, and I it's so so another thing all right here we go uh, I, I had to get the article to come up uh, while we're on the topic of rapidly advancing things 
how about we just get rid of NAND altogether? Now that we've come up with a, a new way of doing it, uh, let's do use our RAM. Yeah, uh, this is just amazing. Basically, a chip that you can store a terabyte on. And I, I don't understand all the terminology, and I only kind of glanced over looking up things, but this is more like RAM and less like a hard drive, isn't it? Yes. So, you know, imagine see, yeah. having a terabyte of RAM. Which RAM is, <laughs> I, you know, just, three or four times faster than than compact than flash memory. Right. Um, and uh, is it's less it's more volatile, it's less stable, but uh, presumably you would load things from the the flash into the RAM and then just keep it going there forever. Yeah. Right. And so imagine how long and apparently our ram is non-volatile though and it can keep data even when it's powered off oh, much awesome. like nand okay and it's and it uses less power so yeah this is really interesting i'm wondering how long this is going to take before it actually comes uh to market because this stuff is sounds really cool so a read speed yeah. of about 17 megabytes uh, per second which is fast but not super fast a write speed of 140 megabytes per second. Yowza. Wow. Um, <laughs> so spies will love it. They can get in there and copy somebody's hard drive in no time flat. So I'm sure the NSA might already have this. Yeah, they have, they, they're they the ones who developed it. The NSA invented it. Yeah. And then they've just declassified it and made it available. Uh, it. I have said this. Uh, probably every two or three years that I've been a, an adult, it's an amazing time to be alive, and it's yeah. still it's still true because every every three or four years something comes out that is so amazing. Uh, I think I can't believe that I'm alive to see the changes that are happening, and it's just going to keep getting better. Um, wow. that's just that's just really cool. Yeah, I, I'm almost I speechless because so. I'm reading these specs and what they're supposing this stuff could do. It's just Wow. <laughs> I mean, you really, at this point, you wouldn't even need a hard drive. That would just be useless. You know, you just, if you have a terabyte of RAM on your computer, I mean, you could have VMs set up in RAM to access whenever uh, every application gets its own virtual machine, it, it, whatever you want it to do. Uh, it's just amazing. Hello, Enterprise. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Right. Oh, and and let's just keep going with things getting faster and better. How about seven gigabits Wi-Fi that will that'll go up to a mile? Dang. I so look forward to this because this would be perfect out where I live. Now, this is the line of sight kind of Wi-Fi and not like your Wi-Fi router at home. Um, but, you know, you like in my house, I have a pole about 60 feet up beside my house that points to an antenna a few miles away. And it has to be line of sight. If you turn it too much or if trees or whatever get in the way, then all of a sudden your signal doesn't work. But seven gigs, even shared among a bunch of people, that is still freaking fast coverage. And the FCC has changed its rules to allow this higher powered outdoor operations 
in the 57 to 64 gigahertz range. So, you know, maybe if Bambi gets too near the tower, she might get fried or radiation poisoning or something. But, you know, it's a small price to pay to get me good bandwidth at home. <laughs> <laughs> and and so this, uh, it's not quite uh, as universal as, say, 4G. Um, the right. spectrum requires a more precise uh, aiming than that. So you can't just stick an right. antenna up in a populated area. But yeah, the, for that literal last mile connectivity. So you could do, depending on the cost of this thing, let's say it's uh, you know a couple hundred dollars to a couple thousand dollars per node. Uh, it makes it um, reasonably profitable for an ISP to set up an endpoint. So I can, you know, every mile put up one of these things and deliver seven gigabits to a remote location and then from there set up my omnidirectional antenna and start spreading that seven gigs out you know yeah. the reason that seth you don't have better bandwidth than you do and that a lot of the world doesn't is it's just not economically viable to get them there which is why google did that whole loon project uh putting balloons in the air trying to make it economically right. viable to deliver bandwidth so you know you combine some of the initiatives that are out there today with this uh, use of unlicensed spectrum it's already out there the te- this isn't new technology this is the the fcc uh finally releasing people to use this technology they've been holding this exactly. this uh this fre- uh, frequency spectrum and saying nobody can build anything on this um and 4g is getting crowded 3g you know everything is getting more and more crowded so finally they said all right fine you can use these uh, airwaves uh so that's that's cool but because it's not new technology and because it's just a regulatory thing we could see these next month yeah could yeah doubt it could yeah we probably won't but it's kind of cool that it's not like the only thing that has to be done is they have to say okay if i put a tower up here can i get enough customers to justify the infrastructure expense and if the answer is yes then boom you get a tower there and you don't even have to run fiber to the tower you know you can just set up one tower directly to another tower and you can do that every couple of every you know mile or so and then have people pointing to them and it to me it's it's just really cool it's a you know i might could get a few megs without it costing me an arm and a leg maybe just an arm and a toe so so in in the u.s the average uh cost for brand broadband is about 50 bucks a month so i'm a little more so i'm a little less but on average a lot 50 bucks a month for for broadband um so if i uh per customer now i'm taking in six hundred dollars a year so again using an arbitrary number say it cost me a thousand dollars to set up one of these devices two customers i've made my money back you can feed a whole lot more than two customers with seven gigabits of bandwidth so this could be incredibly popular profitable if the numbers work out of course i totally made up those numbers it may even if it's ten thousand you know now you only need 20 customers well, yeah, and, you know, there are rural areas that don't have 20 customers, but not many of them. Right. And the other thing they could do to add the layers to entry is now. Well, and, and you know. Okay. okay you're talking over each other. Chris, you go first. Okay. I was going to say one thing they could do also to help um, for to the ISPs could do to help uh, extend the amount of people they could put in that seven gigabit spectrum is they could put caching proxies on each on each node that they set up. So not only are they saving, you know, making money off of them, but they are also making the bandwidth spread out a little bit even thinner because they have those caching proxies at every node. 
Yeah, that's true. Uh, caching can certainly help out. Okay, Seth, now what were you going to say? No, I was just going to say you're going to get a lot faster, and this could really like hurt, if not destroy, the satellite internet service because you're going to get faster, and you wouldn't be subject to the same fair use clauses probably that you would find in satellites. So it would just be uh, it would be a win-win for the consumer because it would be more competition, and more competition means price wars, and that usually means lower prices. All right, and then our last news story of the night, uh, I'm going to, well, let's see. Pick pick one of the last two guys. They're both interesting, and I just want to do one of them. Okay, let's do the um, the the one labeled Onion there. Right. How about that? Take it away. So uh, okay. the Onion router is a thing that makes you secure. Turns out not so much. <laughs> yeah, and... There is a vulnerability, not in the Onion Router, which is Tor, but in a version of Firefox that a lot of people use. And uh, the title of the news article is nearly half of the deep web goes dark following child porn bus. Because unfortunately, a lot of what this gets used for is, you know, illegal activities such as child porn and things like that. But there are other uses for it that aren't necessarily criminal. And um, there was a a hack to Firefox that allows someone to look at your package and then they, they can pull your IP address from Firefox and then be able to single out where you are. And what the un, what the, the tour people were suggesting has a workaround is go to using some type of live CD to do that instead of, you know, using your regular OS. Um, anyway, that was just, you know, we talk a lot about security here and not necessarily super in depth, but the tour network has come up from time to time. And just because it's pretty secure, it's subject to vulnerabilities such as, such as anything else. And it's old, old versions of Firefox that are causing that this vulnerability is in that apparently if you were updated. Right. So you might ask you the question, why would somebody be using an old version of, of Firefox uh, when they're running the tour. Well, the, the for Windows users, the easiest way to get on tour is to download a pre-built package that has a browser pre-configured with the proxy settings and everything ready to go. Well, that pre-built package was built some time ago and hasn't been updated. So even people today who are doing it uh, are downloading a pre-built package that is using a, an old version of Firefox, a... Um, a vulnerability was found in that that uh, the feds exploited and the feds created a um, uh, a hack that sends just a, a, a really just sort of a ping and says here I am to a federally owned website so that's that's kind of all it does it's not tracking it's not snooping on you but it says here I am I'm so I'm trying to conceal what I'm doing now here's my IP address pay attention to me uh, and so it's it's not right. as um, bleak as some people like to say in that it's you know you're um, uh, the tour is busted. Tor is still good. Tor is still, it's an anonymizer. Right. It's a randomizer. It makes your packets hard to find. But if you connect to a website, that website knows who you are because that's the way the web works. So this thing forces a connection back to a government-owned website, which is kind of cool. 
Yeah. And um, the there were a lot of different links for this and the one I chose. Yep. Apparently, they came out later and said they weren't sure if it was the FBI or not. It was registered yeah. to like Virginia, close to a bunch of government offices. That IP address was in the neighborhood, but they can't be certain it was right. law enforcement agencies. So they, they had to backpedal off of that. Yeah, it's uh, according to the the internet, ICANN, the people who hand out uh, numbers and IP addresses, it's an unallocated address that that nobody is supposed to own. Yeah. Uh, and a new right. segment that Seth has just added to the show this week, this week in computer history, the IBM PC was born. Yes, uh, tomorrow, Monday, the 12th of august 1980 the pc not necessarily the first computer but ibm's pc was released so um and, and actually i'm sorry 81 and you know it, it was a whopping 4.77 megahertz processor with 16 <laughs> kilobytes of memory that you could expand up to 256 if you wanted to and you could get one or two 160k floppy drives for the low low bargain basement price of $1565 uh the equivalent of $3500 today but you know if you you know you think about it when it came out those were really awesome specs yeah. and for a $1500 today you can buy a computer with pretty decent specs so you know the price of computing has come down a whole lot, but PC turns 23 tomorrow, this week in history. Well, what's interesting is if you track that, um, the uh, the PC market was at about $1,500 of then money for a long time. And then, right. then it fell to the $1,000, and that's where it stayed. What you get for your 1000 and what 1000 is worth have changed but it's still about a thousand dollars for a decent machine um, right you know you can get cheaper you can get less for less but sort of you know this at the time was state-of-the-art so to get the the best whiz bank state-of-the-art machine today it cost you about a thousand dollars um and so that it's interesting it stayed at 1500 for a long time then it hit a thousand and it stayed at a thousand for even longer than it was at 1500 yeah and a thousand will yeah. buy you a very sweet desktop computer and really a very good Windows computer or a laptop. So, you know, and it will almost buy you a Surface RT um, without the cover. Yeah. So this was uh, 32 years ago, 1981. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Never mind. I, what did I say? 23 earlier? Yeah. 32 years ago. Wow. I was having a conversation with a, a kid, uh, a student of mine. A yeah, few years someone's ago, math is broken. Of the, <laughs> the fact that how technology always gets cheaper and better. And I said, you know, in, in 1980, when the, the CD player was invented, you know, it cost a whole bunch of money. I said, wasn't it 1980? That sounds about right. And he said, I was born in 87. <sighs> Never mind. <laughs> Never mind. And uh, the next segment that Seth has added to the show notes, because Mark loves numbers. We're just going to do one of those, Seth. Pick one. 
<laughs> okay. Um, well, because I know how much you love these kind of numbers, Android tablets and smartphones shipments surge uh, second quarter of 2013. So... Android year over year growth 162.9%, iOS shrunk 14.1%, and Windows was up a whopping 527%. That means <laughs> that's because the, they um, gave them away. <laughs> no, no, Windows RT is labeled separately. Oh, okay. So, um, yeah, no, basically, there were a hundred Windows tablets sold the quarter before and they were up to 527 no so kidding. that's how they got a whopping so obviously since their growth is over three times as much as android they're three times as good as any android device yes so there you go mark there's some numbers for you because you love them so much yes windows is clearly the best because it had a 500 percent growth uh but if you look at shipment units shipped in the millions uh this is this is where uh, it uh, blows your mind. Windows sold 1.8 million devices. Windows, right? Not Windows RT. Windows computers, 1.8 million well, devices. Tablets and smartphones. Yes. So, and uh, Windows uh, and, and Android in that same time, 28.2 million units. So. 26 and a half million more units but it looks like windows is is uh the clear juggernaut if you express it in percentages that's why percentages are bogus every time right and if they maintain these percentages windows will overtake in you know five or six years (laughs) so yes if oh yeah uh, that that uh, that table needs to be in a classroom somewhere with, with the caption why percentages are bogus because uh, that is that is a beautiful beautiful table that expresses why you should never listen to anybody who is expressing in inches uh, excuse me in percentages i don't know where inches came from um, <laughs> right but because you love numbers so much yes. i wanted to throw it out there for you just you know because we're friends and all but you know what's not bogus the linux academy is not bogus yeah they're real guys with real stuff and have a real product to sell and we like them because they pay us real money well other we like them for other reasons too uh so in case you really you know who the linux academy is no now. but uh, in case you're playing this for somebody who's never listened to the show before and doesn't know linux academy offers step-by-step video courses with the idea of taking a, a total beginner and making them a certified uh, system administrator by the time they're done how can you do that you might ask well that's easy you have almost 200 training videos with online courses uh, and uh, not not just videos, but whole courses that are taught in video format. Uh, you have PDF study guides so that you can reference after you view the course or, or while you, you view the course. Um, you have online quizzes so that you can check your knowledge, see how you're doing. You can uh, you can track your thing using the uh, the the lesson browser. Um, it comes with a Linux lab that lets you run up to eight different distributions on Amazon's uh, cloud platform, so you can real, really do stuff on a real server, on a real infrastructure, in real time. But if you don't have all that, if you don't have the bandwidth, if you're like Seth out there and you can't do it, that's okay. You can buy the whole kit and caboodle on a DVD and do it offline, which is awesome. Um, 
they uh, they have they also just now. Uh, there's a new feature that's uh, only uh, going to be available for the next couple of weeks. They have a registration open for their LPIC Level 1 yep. instructor-led study class. So the LPIC is a an industry standard Linux certification. Um, they're having a class uh, that is uh, real-time, led by an instructor, and you can go check that out. Uh, you, can, uh, you, you sign up for Linux Academy, and then once you're a member of the Academy, it's an extra $100.00. To uh, join this class, a hundred dollars. Well, that's ridiculous. No, no, it's not. If you can get an industry certification for uh, the hundred dollars it takes to take that class, run and jump on it. So you might say, okay, if the class is a hundred dollars, how much is the Linux Academy? How many hundreds of dollars is this going to cost me? About a buck. You can try it out for two weeks for a buck. One dollar gets you a fourteen-day free trial. That's where they really get you. Because after that 14 days, they stick you for another $18. Come on, people. 19 bucks a month for all of this uh, uh, amazing learning and this support. And we haven't even talked about the forums and the online communities that they have there, the end user support helping each other out, the fact that the instructors spend a lot of times in the forums talking with people um, in addition to creating the, the content and leading the classes. And if you buy two months... They'll kick in a third one because you could buy a quarter for $38. $38 a quarter for world-class industry standard uh, education. Just do it. Yeah, it, it, it's a no-brainer. Just go out and do it. If you want to know Linux, there's the place to learn it. And Alchemy Dragon yeah. is in our chat room. He says he just started uh, with the Linux Academy last week, or this week, rather. Uh, he says he really loves it. It's very easy to follow. So yet another of our listeners uh, has a, a testimonial. And so that they know you're our listener when you sign up, use the code EverydayLinux in the referral form to let them know that uh, this is where you heard about it. All right. You were going to say something, Seth? No, I was just going to say the cool thing about the Linux Academy is it's not just some, you know, here's a certification for you to pass and show everybody you're certified. They're actually like, this is the exact kind of thing you would do as a Linux admin in a company, and this is how you do it. Now you can practice that, and then you can review and kind of learn the whys and hows behind it, but you're doing real-life things that... You know, it's you're not just answering. Oh, I think that's A or I think that's B. You're this is the command you run to do that, and here's how you get there. So, you know, the first lesson is how to terminal into a server. So, you know, you kind of need the first lesson there to learn how to do the rest. Uh, Very worthwhile if you want to get into the IT field. Yeah, and one feature I forgot to mention, their newest feature, the Linux Academy for Teams, uh, which is great if you have... Um, if you are a business and you have employees and you want to uh, send them to the Linux Academy and let them uh, learn, you can track their progress, see what they're doing, or as I call it, uh, the Linux Academy for Education. Because if you're teaching a class on Linux, uh, this is an awesome tool. You uh, you know you you pay a few bucks for a student, nineteen dollars a month. Uh, for the student to uh, to learn the awesome stuff that they have there, and then you can track their progress and see the courses they've taken and the scores they've gotten on it. Um, it's it's a great tool for for the enterprise or for the education environment. Um, so, the, yet another reason to sign up for the Linux Academy. Okay, and after all of that fanfare, we now get to the meat 
of the show. And it looks like we're uh, going to clock this in at just under four and a half hours. So cool. This may be the shortest show we've done in a while. <laughs> so the question uh, that is sort of presumed, but and we talked about it way back, but you know we're on episode 107 now. So there's a lot of stuff we talked about that um, you know people who yes. have, who've picked up the show in the last couple of years haven't heard. So uh, I thought we'd come back and say why Linux, and so we're going to answer just a couple of questions. The first question, and each of us will will answer them uh, in turn. And we're going to start with why did you choose Linux? At some point back in time, you chose to use Linux. What was it? that made you do it. And I'll start first. I'll say that for me, it was no licensing fees. I was a, an IT guy uh, working uh, uh, in a, as a network administrator. I needed to be able to deploy servers and I didn't have the money uh, to pay for the servers. And, and uh, you know, people often talk about the fact that Windows is essentially free. I'm one of the guys who talks about the fact that Windows is essentially free uh, if it comes on your laptop, right? So free freeness uh, over freedom uh, doesn't really count as an excuse. But in the enterprise world, where not only do you have to buy the service, but you have to buy the licenses, uh, what drove me to Linux was was client access licenses. Every time you put up a server, not only do you have to pay for the server, but you have to pay a fee for every machine that could conceivably touch that server. Not how many that actually do, how many on the network have the capacity to. You have to buy a license for that. Yeah. I couldn't afford it. So I started down the rabbit hole with Linux or down the geek hole, as we say on this show. Uh, and then when I got there, I found out that not only what did it co- not cost me anything, but I could use it whenever and wherever. I could spin up as many machines as I wanted, anytime I wanted, anywhere I wanted, and I didn't have to beg anybody for permission to do it. If you're a, a Windows Server administrator, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You have to, you know, have to sort of bow before the the bill father uh, if you want to do something with Windows. You gotta you gotta pay somebody. Uh, you gotta make sure your uh, your licenses license supports what you're doing. You gotta have the right version. You can't have the small business version in an enterprise, even though it does the same thing. It but there's this piece of paper that says you can't do that here. Um, and I found that in the server world. I didn't have to care. And then when I started getting into uh, the the desktop side of things, I found that there was this uniformity. I had I had Ubuntu on the server and on the desktop. I had CentOS on the server and uh, and on the desktop. And I could have the exact same thing, not a version of it, not a spin of it, not something similar, the exact same thing. So my uh, needing to transition between, oh, now I'm on a server, now I'm on a desktop, went away. Just wasn't there anymore. And so these were the reasons that got me to use Linux. And then there are a couple of Linux-only tools that are just killer. And if you're a network IT guy, Fog. If you don't know about it, go look about it. Go look it up right now. Stop the show. Go look up Fog. You will thank me for it. Uh, but it's Linux only. And so there are a few tools out there that you have to learn to uh, use Linux to be able to use it. So those are the things that got me oh. into it. So, Chris, same question. What got you? Why did you choose Linux? Well, mine is more of a... Um, just because I wanted to know type of thing. Um, I, when I started Linux, I wasn't in IT at all. Um, I was actually a janitor at a hospital. So I heard somebody say Unix for a couple of their big machines that they run. And I'm like, well, Unix, I've never heard of that. You know, I, I went to school to be an electronic technician. So I knew a little bit about Windows and I knew how to read circuits and everything else, but I've never heard of this Unix thing. So then I started. You know, the almighty search engine, which at that time wasn't Google. 
<laughs> it was everything else. Alta Vista. Um, I started. <laughs> it was yeah, Alta Vista. Uh, there was a few of them. Yahoo had a good search engine back then. Uh, but I was curious, so I started poking my nose around to see what was Unix. And then I found out that there was a huge price tag on Unix, and I went, uh, maybe I'll find something else. And then I found Linux, and I went, huh, this is interesting. How does this work? And so I started playing with it, and uh, I started, I don't even remember what year it was, or what version of Red Hat Linux it was that I went out and bought from the from uh, Borders. But uh, that's where I started, and once I started playing with Linux, I was like, so I can do this, not pay for Windows, run it on pretty much any of my hardware, and not even have to th- even worry about it? Huh. So that's where I started, and then I found... Fog when I started in IT, and I start, and then I found Clonezilla and a bunch of the other Linux tools that were, you know, Nmap became my best friend when I started my IT system, my my business, and my working at the school district trying to find open ports so we could track down bugs and problems and everything else. So it was just instantly I, I fell in love, and I haven't left since. All right, Seth. Same question for you. What brought you to Linux? Well, I'm cheap. And um, if I didn't mention it earlier, I'm cheap, but also it's a great way to run a modern OS on older hardware. You know, you're not stuck with the version of Windows XP that barely met the specs when it was sold. You can go, there's lots of other distros, you know, you can do like a Puppy or an Ubuntu or Red Hat or whatever. You get a lot of variety. Tinkering is actually encouraged inside the OS. And then also there's a lot of system recovery tools. Uh, something that I use, Trinity Rescue Disk, has a way to recover passwords that I've forgotten or something like that. They're actually Linux-based, and they are really cool because you can run them off of a CD. You don't even have to install them on your computer to run them. You can like, oh, hey, I wonder what this is like. I put the CD in. Now, granted, a CD is not as fast as a hard drive, but you can run an OS from the CD and you're not making any changes to a computer. So that's kind of why I got into it. And um, I I like it because of the variety that is available. Even though I kind of stick with the same things, I like the fact that there are so many choices. Right. You had the variety to choose to find what you liked. You know, if uh, right. if you're on a Mac, you like it or you don't like it. <laughs> Those are your choices. <laughs> like it or don't like it. Um, no, like it or like it. Th- yeah. That's your choice yes. on a Mac. Uh, so there you go. Three different guys, three different reasons. Uh, money came up in, in all three of them, but it wasn't the only reason. Uh, you got your flexibility. You got the uh, the the fact that you can run modern stuff on old hardware certainly became something that was the reason I used it for a very long time uh, and very heavily when I was deploying it in school for student use. Uh, that was an amazing thing that I could give somebody a modern platform on less than modern hardware. Uh, so yeah, there's lots of reasons uh, to to investigate Linux. So now that you're there, you're in the Linux camp. What keeps you there? And I have to, uh, you know, sort of fall on my sword a little bit and say, I don't use Linux much anymore. I have it on a couple of devices around the house, but it's not my mainstay anymore. Uh, But the reason it's on those couple of devices um, is for the flexibility that it offers. You can do lots of stuff with it. So I have my uh, Boris box that I've talked about uh, a number of times on the show. That's running Linux. I have a, a play machine 
that doesn't have much power, but I can run Linux on it and I can dink around with it. I'm, I'm in the process of uh, setting up a Raspberry Pi. Um, I, I'm going to do that to, to do a, a second media center PC. That'll have Linux on it. So the, the fact that you can do so much with one operating system uh, that you understand uh, and, and you know you, the, you learn it one time, you go to Linux Academy one time, you learn it, and now you can do all these different things with it. Uh, and of course, this is the fun. Like I said, I have the tinkering machine that I just play with, and I still fire it up in a VM now and then just because I miss it. I miss my little penguin buddy. <laughs> Um, but honestly, I, you know, and this resonates less for me than it does for some others. I know that this is probably number one on a lot of people in the Linux community uh, community is there's a little elitism there. So it's a relatively small group of people that understand Linux and can use, you know, uh, the words cron job in a conversation. Um, and so, I, you know, I kind of like to, to puff my chest out a little bit and say, yeah, yeah, I didn't get late in college. Uh, <laughs> sorry, uh, you know, the, 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 and say that, that I know stuff that nobody else does, but hopefully because of this show and others like it, uh, there are more and more people every day learning to use Linux and the, I want the elitism option to go away. I want it to be so prevalent that the, there isn't any anymore, but for now I got to say yeah, my, my own ego keeps me learning about it. You might not have gotten laid in college, but you know how to hack someone's toilet now. <laughs> That's <so>. right. <laughs> there you go. Oh, I I will download that package tonight. Oh, download that. See, when you go to the toilet, everything you use becomes a double entendre, you know? <laughs> yep. <laughs> oh, um, and Seth, why is it you keep using Linux? Well, I don't know if people know this about me, but I'm cheap. Um, and plus, I mean, it works, you know, it, it really works. I can use it if I want to, I use it a lot for working on my windows stuff. If I need to increase the size of a partition on a disc, it's easy for me to pop in a distro such as puppy and, you know, just change the partition and then get out a puppy and then boot back up windows. And all of a sudden, Hey, I didn't realize I had an extra, you know, terabyte on that hard drive or whatever. So it works. It is very functional. And, you know, you don't, you can have one utility that does a bunch of stuff, but you can have a bunch of standalone utilities. Um, so functionality and price are the reasons that I like it. And Chris, what keeps you using it day in and day out? Uh, you know, I'm going to echo a lot of the things you said, Mark. Um, it's the fact that it's flexible. Um, I, I could put it on just about any device and I know it'll work. Uh, I can, you know, the elitism is always a nice option because I could say, yeah, I know Linux. I've been using Linux for 20, you know, 10 years, 15 years, whatever the count is. I don't, I don't remember, but I've been using Linux for a long time. So that, that kind of adds to the, the, the extra, the extra happiness I get when I say it. Um, and the fact that I can tinker on it, I can, compile my own packages if I want to if this package that is released in my distribution isn't doesn't have the features I need I can go out and either find somebody that's already compiled it or compile it myself or write code into a package that will do what I need it to do uh, it, it's just nice to be able to have that flexibility and the, the ability to tinker and not just tinker with what Windows says you can tinker with or try to replace and not have it work all the way uh and the fact that, you know, yeah, it is, it's not 100% bulletproof, but I like the fact that I don't have to worry about all the Windows crap in the internet now, too. Right. I can just, I can fly 
anywhere and do anything I want and not have to worry about, you know, not a lot. I don't have to worry about a lot of things, but there are a few things you still have to worry about. So that, that keeps me there for sure. And to quote William Wallace, I believe, who was said, they can snoop on our privacy, but they'll never take our freedom. So, I think that's exactly what he said. I'm pretty sure that's what he was. He was holding a <laughs> Wi-Fi uh, hotspot in one hand and a Starbucks in the other when he said it. Right. Um, and, you know, riding into battle on his uh, beagle board. I- <laughs> <laughs> hey, by the way, while we're talking, well, voila, voila. While we are talking about um, uh, compiling packages, I've taken a lot of heat over the years about the fact that uh, this show, this Linux show that isn't about Linux, is uh, recorded and produced on a Windows laptop. And I've said before, it's because there aren't uh, ASIO drivers, ASIO drivers, built into the Linux version of Audacity, and that's what I need for my uh, mixer. So here's the challenge out there. If some geek out there who is uh, adamant that this Linux show be run on Linux, compile for me a version of Audacity that has ASIO drivers in it. There are, there are open source or there are free drivers available, but they're not open source. And that's why the Audacity team can't distribute them. You can't distribute them legally either. But uh, you compile it with ASIO drivers. You accidentally leave it on an unsecure Dropbox somewhere. And uh, you uh, happen to send me a link uh, uh, unintentionally uh, that you meant to send to somebody else. And then I download it because now that I'm the bad guy. You're totally uh, have plausible deniability there. Then I'll be able to run the show on Linux. So there you go. There's there's my uh, challenge to to some some Uber geek out there who wants to take it on. Yeah, there you go. Okay, so now the next question that uh, we get often on this show and in our forums, and I get asks, uh, asks, I get asked at work and other places, who should use Linux and why? So, Chris, I'm going to give you first up to bat on this one. I'm going to say everybody because there's not a reason. I know. Of course I am. I'm the elitist. I'm the guy who says that Linux will rule the world. It Honestly, everybody... It sh- could and can use Linux. It's not that difficult. Well, the question was should. A- who should use it? Not who can. Well, there you go. It's the same. Well, it's the same thing for me. Everyone should use Linux. My mom uses Linux. My grandmother used Linux before she passed away. My kids use it. Everybody should use Linux. And why? the only problem then, the only problem is, is those people that have specialized programs that aren't on Linux yet. Okay, so tell me why. If everybody should use it, why should they use it? The harder question. Well, yeah, that is the harder question because it's it's all it's it's about personal preference. Then um, I think everyone. The reason why is because or the, a you don't have to worry about software as much because everything that you install is maintained by the, the distribution, so you don't have to worry about. If your Firefox is out of date and have to go re-download it, or Word's out of date and you have to go re-download packages for that, or updates, they're all given to you when they're available, and you don't have to worry about them as much. Uh, there's also an inherent security ability to Linux, the fact that everybody is a, a, a limited user. Nobody has access to ever, anyone else's files except for the root user, which is a uh, highly high-level access type person. <laughs> So in your home, it would be the one person who's maintaining the computer the most. But uh, 
in general, I don't see a, uh, personally, I don't see a reason why not. There, there, in my world, there is no reason to not use Linux. So right. as far as I'm concerned, the only reason that I have to, the only reason I personally even have a Windows install anywhere near me is games. And that's a, that, that window is slowly closing because more and more of the games I play are being released as a Linux, as a Linux device or a Linux uh, package. So as soon as my games that I play every day are released as a Linux package, I won't have my Windows anymore. It'll just be Linux in my world. All right, Seth, same question. Who should use Linux and why? Okay, if you are somebody who, if you were ever handed something broken and said, I think I can fix that, you should use Linux. <laughs> if you are someone who likes yes. to open up whatever it is, whether it's supposed to be opened or not, and tinker on it and see how it works, then you should use Linux. If you are someone who likes to sit around doing like uh, theorems and postulates and corollaries uh, just to pass the time, you should use Linux. So basically, and if you've ever wondered, what happens if I do this? <laughs> you, Linux is designed for you because, you know, what's the worst that can happen is, oh, you broke your distribution. Well, guess what? You can just download something else and start over. You don't have to. And, you know, and something may or may not work and you get to figure out why that works different now than it did before. So if you like to tinker or if you like to fix stuff or, or if you like to build stuff. Linux is for you because you can do that. You know, yes, you're using your hands typing and whatever, but you're also using your mind to, you know, what happens if I make this change to this file? What does that affect? You know, how can I get this device to work on my computer? These two plugs look like they fit together, but nothing happens. So, you know, if you know how to search in Google, then you should use Linux. Oh, okay. All right, so I'm going to answer that question and say, if you fall into one of two groups, you should use Linux. Like Seth said, the first group, the uh, the tinkerers, the hackers, the guys who need to know how it works and why it works, you should use Linux because it gives you more power over your hardware than you ever are going to get anywhere else. Um, in I fact, have the power. Sorry. By the power of Grayskull. In fact, not only do you have a, a lot more power, do you actually have enough power to break your hardware. The Linux software yep. gives you enough power to ruin your hardware. You can overclock your CPU and fry that sucker. Um, and if that's, you know, if you're the Tim Taylor of the computer world and you're always trying to get more power, you should use Linux. And also, I think the other end of the spectrum, if you know nothing and all you do is browse Facebook and send emails, you need to be using Linux. Because you don't have the sophistication to protect yourself. You don't have the knowledge and understanding to not fall for the Nigerian scam or to not uh, download the Trojan. Um, you need the protection that Linux offers. You also need somebody in your life to administer your machine for you. Uh, yep. But you probably have that. If you're you know, the super simple user, if you're Seth's mom, Seth, mm -hmm. I love your mom, but she needs to be using Linux. Because she doesn't know anything, um, and she doesn't she know she doesn't even know enough to to keep her to know when she's in danger. Uh, so those are the people that That's, need to use Linux, and I think between those two, you know, some variation of those two people that that probably covers seventy percent of everyone. the computer using population. 
Now, there's a there's a group in the middle there that isn't covered, and I'm going to get to that when I move on to the next question. Is there anyone who shouldn't use Linux? And I'm going to step out and say yes. There are people who, who should stay away from it. And that is the people um, who know a little bit but think they know a lot. Those people should not use Linux because there's okay. enough power there to do some damage. You should use a Mac. Because a Mac has a lot of the same protections of Linux, but it doesn't let you do anything that could harm yourself or others. You know, it's it's a gated community. It's a nice flowery garden with a with barbed wire on the fence. Um, so that, that mid range, and I think the I think those people are using Macs. I think those um, moderately sophisticated users who think they're ultra sophisticated users, uh, or if you're just a snob. You shouldn't use Linux because we have enough Linux snobs in the world and we don't need any of them. So those are the, those are the two classes of people who's who I say shouldn't use Linux. Now, Chris, you've already gone on record as saying nobody should not use Linux. I'm going to give you a chance to uh, advi- uh, revise and extend your remarks. No, I'm still going to say that the, um, the only exception, like I said, would be the ones that have things in their life that are exclusive. So your garage band people, your people that can't live without Photoshop, the high-end digital photography people, um, there are reasons not to run Linux, but that doesn't mean they can't use it everywhere else. But in those people, those people that have very sophisticated jobs or very sophisticated hobbies that require a very closed system, the mechanics of the world. None of their stuff's going to work in Linux. You know, there may be some hodgepodge people that are working on backporting packages to work with it, but a lot of those high-end peoples can't run Linux as a full-time operating system because of their jobs or because of their hobbies that are too high-end. Now, that doesn't mean they can't use it for everything else except for their high-end positions, but in general, I think everyone should lose Linux, and there's no reason not to. Even the people that would break their systems Every day, any day of the week, they should still use Linux so they learn how not to break their systems. So then they no longer become the, you know, people that don't know enough. They know enough then. They know what to do and what not to do. And it's a very hard lesson to learn because when I first started using Linux, I was that type of a person. I was the type that would break things because I didn't realize that, oh, if I did that, it ruins things. Uh, and I learned from it. So there is nobody that should not use Linux. All right, Seth, same question. Man, this is a tough question because if you're someone who wants to, if you like to follow the crowd, basically, you know, you shouldn't use Linux because Linux is kind of for the person who, you know, might acknowledge the crowd over there, but kind of wants to stay away from them. You know, and this is kind of more of a mindset than any, you know, because truth of the matter is you can do most of the same stuff with Linux that you can with Windows or a Mac. Uh, Some stuff you can do better, some stuff you can do worse. Some areas it's a superior platform, some areas it's still lacking. But if you want to be, if you want to fit in 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 the world, you know, and you want to sit at the popular table in the lunchroom, you really shouldn't use Linux. Um, If you don't care 
And if you don't want to learn, you shouldn't use Linux. It's not to say that someone who doesn't care can't use Linux because you install it and it just works. But for the most part, if you don't know how to do something, you're going to have to admit to someone else you don't know it. Then just watch somebody else who's using Windows. So, you know, it's one of those, the reasons not to use it are a lot of the same reasons to use it. Because if you don't want to have to learn anything, we'll just put the CD in there and, you know, click install and then reboot and you're done. So you don't have to learn anything. And if something doesn't work, you know, reboot, <laughs> maybe, uh, I don't know. I and, can't come up with us. And of course, you know, the niche applications who, um, you know, I, I have to have something that does this and there isn't an option in Linux. Those right. people if shouldn't you, use Linux. If because you have a, a digital mixer that does not have Linux support <laughs> uh, and you do a podcast and you need to use your digital mixer, you should not use Linux. Uh, but the, I, you know, I agree. Those are very niche cases, uh, specific hardware. You know, I, I use this, um, this screen reader or, or this uh, enabling device to to uh, assistive technology because I have a disability um, and you may not be able to do that. And there there's work underway. We haven't mentioned him in a while. Uh, Jonathan Nadu and the, the Sonar Project is yep. trying to, to, to cut some of those barriers away, but there are still barriers right now. Certain assistive technologies only run on Windows. Um, certain hardware only runs on Windows, and certain applications that are mission critical, you have to have it. You can't live without it, and that can include games. Uh, if there, if you're a diehard gamer for a game that's only available on Windows, if you want to play uh, Call of Duty, you're going to play it on a win on Windows. That's just all there yeah. is to it. So that you know, there there are very small pockets of people that for whom. Uh, everyday Linux, as we uh, say on the show, is just not practical. But I think they're a very small section of the population. I think, um, you know, 80, 90, uh, yeah, 70 maybe is on the low side uh, percent of the, the computer using public can benefit from using Linux. Not saying can get away with it, but your life would be better if you use Linux over Windows or Mac. Mm -hmm. So there's I my story. And I'm sticking to it. There that's you go. Why, that's why yeah. we do this show. That's why we like Linux. That's why we do this show. That's why we hope to convince other people to like Linux. And you know, the fact is, most people, in my experience, who try it, like it. And the people who try it and don't like it already decided they weren't going to like it before they tried it. Yeah. That's been my experience. Yeah, I would, I would pretty much agree with that. That's what it seems like every time. And a little look ahead next week, uh, we have a, a, a guest on the show, um, a guy that I have an internal feud with. He doesn't know about it, but he uh, he used, his website bears the same name as this podcast in part, and uh, so I, I, I silently hate him. <laughs> <laughs> Not really. But, uh, Seth, no, tell us, uh, tell us a little bit everyday about Everyday Linux user, yes. I believe. Yes. is uh, going to be our host next week, provided something doesn't fall through. Um, but he's based out of England, uh, the United Kingdom. And so he will be on. And I think we're going to be talking about Magenta. So, you know, that'll give us a chance to uh, either spin it up or look at some screenshots on it so we can ask him some relevant pointy questions. So uh, I'm looking forward to it, actually having a guest host and maybe in a couple of weeks might have another one lined up. So. 
All right. So uh, we uh, we like guests if we can get it because they do most of the work, uh, but That's also right. because you've heard us for 107 episodes now, and it would be great to uh, to hear from other people. So uh, if you would like to be on the show, raise your hand. Let us know. And the, the way you can do that is go to elementop.com, use the Contact Us button at the top of the page. That will send uh, uh, present you with a nice little form that, uh, that uh, dissuades lots of spam bots, and it will send me an email. Or you can send me an email directly, mark at elementop.com, or send all of us an email, edl at elementop.com. And we'll get that. Or if you just want to be on the show in a one-minute snippet, uh, you can do that by dialing our voice number, Google Voice, uh, 559-IMOP. Leave us, leave us a voicemail, and we'll play that on the air. All ways that you can be on the show. Also, you can leave feedback that we will read. Uh, don't forget the forums, particularly the bad movies forums. There are apparently great bad movies out there that I need to see, and I'm depending on you to tell me what they are. So having covered all that, it's time for our links of the week. Chris. I don't see a command line there. I see something no. else. Yes. I ran across this a couple of weeks ago, and it made me laugh heavily. Um, and if you actually go to this link, it's the it's a YouTube link for, of this, but it's basically a comparison between the, zomb- between the Walking Dead and Toy Story. And we talked about, we did another news story about that a little while back. Seth brought that link. But this is yep. a five-and-a-half-minute video which makes yep. it even and it, funnier. And it, it actually has snippets from each show as they compare. So, like, there's a couple of points where, like, uh, oh, I can't remember the bear's name, the little purple bear that's in the, the three-year-old's room that doesn't get beat up because he's angry about being left behind. Lots of hugging um, bear. That's him. They have a couple of clips where he's saying something, and then the actual the almost word-for-word fra- word phrase is repeated in The Walking Dead. So I have to give the guy who the guy who made this immense credit for actually going through both three movies and three seasons of The Walking Dead to find all the times when they actually matched and put them together. Um, it was a gr- I, I I loved the story when Seth brought it up and I loved this video when I found it. It's brilliant. Go take a look at it. Uh, notes will, or the link will be in the show notes for you, everyone to enjoy. All right, and Seth, Chris stole some of your thunder. He gave a cool link this week. How are you going to respond? I am just simply going to say ducksarethebest.com. So <laughs> that is my link for you to look at and go crazy. Um, word of warning, you know, if you have problems with epileptic seizures playing games, you might not want to click on this link. <laughs> OP is not responsible anyway for seizures resulting from it. Uh, standard internet disclaimer. Ducksarethebest.com. <laughs> oh, oh, the pain. It hurts. It hurts. My eyes are burning. <laughs> ah. <laughs> I think my retina are bleeding. Oh, I can stop. take that. Oh, I, Seth, you never disappoint. No. Um, yeah. And I, I think that's the way to end the show. Ducks are, in fact, the best. Uh, guys, thanks for being with us. Uh, Internet, thanks for putting up with another 17-hour show. Sorry it wasn't longer. We'll do better next time. Uh, For those of you who stuck uh, through in the chat room and watching live through all the weird 
hardware and uh, software glitches we had this week. Sorry about that. We'll try to do better next week. We always try to do better next week, and we hope you'll join us next week with our guest, who I secretly hate. So uh, thanks for everybody for being with us, and that ends this episode of Everyday Linux. Everyday Linux.